The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. They've got a deal on hostages. Welcome to the fastest show in politics as the Biden administration helps to broker an agreement to secure the release of 50 hostages held by Hamas, including Americans, in exchange for 150 Palestinians held by Israel. We will talk about details of the plan, walk through what we know, and discuss what it might lead to with Congressman Ami Berra, the Democrat from California, serves on the House Foreign Affairs and Intelligence Committees, and is with us at the table this day before Thanksgiving. Republicans win a special House election in Utah, and Andrew Cuomo reportedly thinking about a run for mayor of New York City. We'll have analysis on all these stories from our signature panel. Bloomberg Politics contributors Rick Davis and Jeannie Shanzano are with us for the hour. So thanks for joining on the radio, on the satellite, and on YouTube. Search Bloomberg Global News. The cameras are lit as we welcome the congressman to the table, Ami Berra of the 6th District of California. It's great to see you, sir, and welcome back to Bloomberg. Joe, thanks for having me on. You're like the only lawmaker left in Washington today, so cheers to you. And thanks for being with us for an important conversation. I know that this is uh, an important matter to you based on your perch uh, on the Foreign Affairs and Intelligence Committees. And based on your role as a doctor. I don't know if you prefer to be called doctor or congressman. You can tell me that later. You have a unique view as to what's coming here because it reminds us that not only do we have a breakthrough, but there are also 200 hostages still in Gaza. No, absolutely. And um, being on the Intelligence Committee, we've been getting briefed on, on a pretty daily basis about you know, the situation um, October 7th, but post October 7th, and then the negotiations with the, the hostages. You know, President Biden, his national security team, um, his foreign policy team have been very much involved in this. And you heard Prime Minister Netanyahu talk about mm-hmm. you know, calling the president to, to help get a better deal. And the focus really has been on um, the safe return of the hostages. So I think this was a breakthrough yesterday. And what do you I'm, make of this three to one? Slot? You know, I, I, I think we always anticipate it would be something like that. Um, you know, it's it sounds like it's um, Palestinian women and teenagers yes. in exchange for the first tranche of hostages being a lot of children and, and, and women. Um, there's that possibility of, you know, continuing the hostage exchange. And, you know, I, I think, you know, this is a good first step. Well, the hostage exchange uh, comes with the pause, as we're calling it, not a ceasefire. And I know that's deliberate language that we're using. It also allows for 300 aid trucks a day to be coming in from Egypt that might be equally as important a component here when you consider the the plight right now of Palestinian civilians. In- incredibly important, you know, and I do see this as a doctor. You know, you've watched, you know, um, the, the healthcare professionals, the doctors in Gaza talking about having to operate without anesthesia, you yeah. know, hospitals running out of fuel, God. folks running out of medicine, and just the, the massive um, innocent civilian loss. So... You know, that's not helping the, the, the cause of trying to find peace. It's also, in my mind, not making Israel more secure. So, hmm. you know, can we take advantage of this pause? Can we get needed humanitarian aid, food, water, medicines, fuel into Gaza to the civilians, not to Hamas? Mm-hmm. Um, and then can we take this temporary pause and maybe make it a little bit more permanent? The uh, message from Benjamin Netanyahu was very clear yesterday. Not a ceasefire. In fact, when this pause is over, we will resume fighting in Gaza to to root out Hamas. Uh, With that said, there's the potential for a second phase here that could lead to a a more lasting ceasefire, maybe something we would actually refer to there. Are you concerned about Benjamin Netanyahu's posture at a time that could lead to a breakthrough? You know, I think um, they're going to continue to degrade Hamas. They're going to continue to do what they have to do Mm -hmm. in order to secure the Israeli people. But is there a different way to prosecute this war? Can you do something a little bit more surgical, more tactical, um, minimize the the massive 
innocent civilian lives lost, the destruction. I mean, at the end of the day, um, the Palestinian people have to live somewhere. And, you know, I don't think it's a, a great idea for Israel to try to occupy Gaza. I'm not sure what that looks like. So can we take this pause? Can we think about what might a two-state solution look like and, you know, and start that conversation? A two-state solution, boy, and it, it, it feels far away uh, at the moment. The administration has received a lot of criticism from, from many progressive Democrats uh, about the way that this war is being comported, even though that it is not the U.S. conducting this battle, but full-throated support for Israel while thousands of Palestinian civilians die. You can look at this one way or the other. It's very easy to blame Hamas in this case, the Biden administration would tell you that's what we should do. But it creates a political problem for him on the left. What do you hear from your colleagues in the House? You know, Hamas clearly instigated this war. Mm -hmm. So that, you know, there's no debate about who started this war. Completely. And Israel clearly has the, the responsibility to protect its civilians um, and make sure something like October 7th doesn't happen again. Mm -hmm. That said, um, you know, you do see the, the massive humanitarian crisis taking place, the loss of life. You know, it's heart-wrenching to see young children being pulled out of rubble and so forth. So, you know, I think President Biden's been very clear in the U.S. focus. Obviously, we will continue to, to help Israel secure its security. Um, moving um, the aircraft carriers into the region, we are making sure this doesn't extend or expand yeah. um, into another front. So that is also clear to our mission. And then, you know, the attacks on our troops and, and, and others in, in the region, we have to respond to that as well. Well, what are you hearing on, on your committees? And I suspect it's both of them at this point, but I, I, I imagine that the Intelligence Committee has been quite a wealth of information, most of which you probably cannot share with me right now. But do you think that the presence of these two carrier groups helped to avoid a second front? Would Iran have been involved in this now if the U.S. hadn't acted the way it did? You know, I think moving the assets very quickly has really, you know, there's an initial concern about Hezbollah perhaps getting involved here. Yeah. You know, they, we haven't really seen that. You know, you've seen missile launches and mm -hmm. so forth, but um, not a full-scale involvement. And then you have Iranian proxy groups in, in Syria, in Iraq, um, the Houthi rebels in Yemen. Again, I, I think we, along with others, have been doing what we have to do to make sure this doesn't spread. Hmm. Uh, many have suggested, and it's not just now, it's part of being the president of the United States. There are things the president knows that we will never imagine. And people question the president's demeanor when he walks into a room. Why does he look tired today? Why does he seem angry with reporters? What kind of information is he hearing when he's briefed in the morning or when he interacts with intelligence officials right now? You know, being president of the United States probably is the hardest job in the world. And, and think about it. There's two real hot conflicts going on in yeah. this world. You've got the illegal um, invasion by Russia of Ukraine. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I met with some U Ukrainian um, civilians and, and healthcare professionals earlier this week. And, you know, they just talk about the atrocities that they're coming across and what's happening. And, you know, they're about to enter another winter. So that's got a way on the president. And now um, crisis in the Middle East and, you know, trying to get the hostages back to diplomacy. All at the same time where last week he was meeting, meeting with um, Xi Jinping, trying to, you know, find a path forward to avoid conflict in Asia. So incredibly challenging job. I think the president's been doing a great job. This here. is why they say it's not for the faint of heart or not necessarily for an old man. Do you worry about his ability to do that for another four years? You know, I think he's been a great president. You don't hear people criticizing the job. Um, I equate age with experience, and he's the most experienced president that we've had. And I think the voters should look at his record of achievement. And if you look at that record of achievement, we've got the strongest economy in the world. Unemployment is way down. Wages are rising. And then with these conflicts around the world, and as someone on intelligence and, and, and foreign policy, um, I think he's doing a great job keeping a world together right now. We're spending time with Congressman Ami Barra of California. The attention is going to shift from that end of Pennsylvania Avenue back to Congress yeah. when you return next week or when your colleagues do. You, for the record, are still here at it. You could start negotiating a budget right now. Um, but with that said... It may not come easily, the conversation around Israeli funding. Your new speaker decided to strip that away from Ukraine, Taiwan, and the border to bring that to a vote with, I realize, what you saw as a poison pill with defunding 
the IRS to a point here. It's going to have to take some shape, though. And I wonder if you have that vision in your head. I mean, I, I think we would like to do both Ukraine and Israel supplemental together. Um, I think, you know, you're starting to hear some of my Republican colleagues say, hey, what you're asking for with regards to Taiwan or the Indo-Pacific's not enough. Mm. Um, you know, my friend Mike Gallagher certainly is asking for more. Mm-hmm. So that could be part of this. And then I do think, you know, um, it's fair for us to do something on the southern border. I mean, we've got a, a real challenge there. I do think um, Republicans may want something different than what we're looking at. But, you know, let's negotiate around how we secure our southern border and perhaps put all that together in a, a, a security supplemental. Based on what you've seen by this Republican majority, is it possible to get that done at the same time as figure out how to avoid a government shutdown in January? I mean, as we've seen time and time again, the only way to do that is through a bipartisan deal. They need you. <laughs> well, they need me and folks like me yeah. that are willing to negotiate, compromise, and, and, and find a middle ground. And, you know, that's not going to be the, the extremes on the, the, the far right or the extremes on the far left. It'll be a, a center-right, center-left coalition. Are you, are you optimistic that that exists based on... What you've seen, the speaker was at Mar-a-Lago last weekend, I understand. Yeah, Maybe, maybe but, he doesn't want to be working with you. You know, um, Speaker Johnson did the right thing by, you know, uh, doing a relatively clean CR. Mm-hmm. You know, that he got a victory in this two-step process again, um, and I think we were satisfied with it. So, you know, at the end of the day, it is going to take bipartisanship. And I think he realizes that. I think former Speaker Kevin McCarthy realized mm-hmm. that. And, you know, it always came down to Democrats and Republicans working together. Do you talk to Kevin McCarthy? He's, he's your colleague from the California delegation. You see him on the cafeteria line now. I mean, what's, what's his life like as a former Speaker? You know, I don't, I, I don't want to speculate on what, what um, Kevin McCarthy's thinking. Uh, hopefully there's no elbow checks in the back or anything okay. like that. <laughs> Sounds like you haven't gone out for drinks lately. Um, people should know that you were instrumental, and I know this is very important to you, in helping to settle Afghan refugees. Uh, we have a situation now where Israel's neighbors are not opening their doors to Palestinians that have been urged to evacuate, for instance. What's the answer to this? You know, I think we're going to continue to put pressure on Egypt. Obviously, um, they've, they've got a, a shared border with Gaza mm-hmm. and, and the Rafah crossing. Um you know, I think we will continue to talk to the other Arab nations and, and others. They have to be part of the solution. And again, if you can get a prolonged pause and potentially a ceasefire, any two-state solution, any security guarantees are going to involve the, the other countries in the region. Yeah. Well, you start wondering as well, would the U.S. play a role in housing refugees, or is that just too far away to be practical. No, I think we've always taken refugees in Sacramento County, which is my home district, yeah. has always been um, a place where, you know, going back to um, the Vietnam War, you know, a lot of Southeast Asian refugees um, in the Sacramento region, you know, to what we went through a couple of years ago with the Afghan refugees. We've got one of the largest populations. And, and I would say that the refugees really add to the diversity and, and what makes Sacramento great. And again, we're, we're a country where we should um, take our fair share, but obviously work with everyone else. Mm-hmm. People are going to sit down at the Thanksgiving table tomorrow, and we know that politics will probably be talked about uh, in a few households. There was a, a poll that I've referred to repeatedly from Quinnipiac this week. Six out of ten voters are hoping that politics will not be in the conversation at the dinner table. But it's hard to avoid when issues like inflation are driving politics, the things that we deal with every day, the, the prices that we pay, uh, and I suspect that's going to be part of what comes up tomorrow. What do you want people to know that they might not be aware of when they say, hey, this costs a lot more than it did in 2019, or, hey, this president's too old to get out of bed in the morning? What would Ami Barra tell them if he was at the other side of the table? I'd say when, when we give our blessings before we carve into that turkey, um, let's look at the complexity of the world. Let's you know, hope for a, a better, kinder um, country and world and you know um there's much more that binds us together than separates us and you know the divisions that sometimes you see in congress or the divisions you see across the dinner table if we could actually um find some civility find the ability to look at the world from someone else's eyes and Mm. and that's what i'm trying to do you know again when i think about the tragedy in gaza i can see it you know when i talk to my palestinian american constituents the pain and anguish in their voices. It's the same thing when I was talking to um, 
families of hostage victims that are, are praying for their relative safe return from um, that, when they were taken by Hamas, they have that same pain and anguish. So if we could learn to see the world from someone else's eyes, you know, we might find a path forward. That's uh, a wonderful answer, and I appreciate your coming to see us today. Happy Thanksgiving to you and your family, even if you have to spend it here in the nation's capital. <laughs> Happy Thanksgiving. At least I get to be with my family. Indeed. Thank you, Congressman. Thank you. That's really all we can ask for, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, our best to your family, and uh, cheers. Thank you for joining us. I'm Joe Matthew in Washington. This is Bloomberg Sound On as we assemble our panel for a quick swing at some of the issues we were talking about with the Congressman. We'll have a lot more time as well with Rick Davis and Jeannie Shanzano. Here they are, primed for Turkey. And some pretty good news today, Jeannie, in a hostage agreement that we talked about yesterday. It seems to have largely taken the form of what we expected. Is this a win for Joe Biden? You know, I, I do think it is. We even heard from Benjamin Netanyahu yesterday who said he was given the deal that Qatar and the United States had brokered. He didn't like parts of it. He went to Biden. They were able to rectify it. And he personally thanked Joe Biden. So I do think it is. But I think very, very smartly, the administration cannot and should not take a victory lap on anything here. These are 50 of more than 200 hostages. There is so much more work to be done. And I think Jake Sullivan on the morning show said the same. So I think tone is absolutely appropriate. And they do deserve kudos for this work they've done in a really, really awful situation. Well, this is a good point, Jeannie, and you're not the first to suggest that this isn't a time to be taking victory laps or celebrating here. Rick, obviously, this is very good news uh, for 50 families, some of them American. But to Jeannie's point, there are 200 others. Does this actually help to potentially unlock another deal? Sure. I think that uh, the Qatari foreign minister said just that, that, you know, this isn't you know, the game done. This is the game begins. And, and that game is... If you can entice these terrorists into releasing hostages for, you know, uh, uh, certain kinds of terms like uh, ceasefires, then maybe you just keep tacking on. And, uh, you know, the terms of this are you get another day of a ceasefire mm -hmm. if you give us 10 more hostages. Uh, the hope would be that you could get all these hostages released by year end. And there's some indications uh, from Palestinian um, uh, officials that that could be the potential outcome. So. Uh, crush fingers, keep your, you know, keep your, hold your breath. But uh, it does seem that we're headed in the right direction when it comes to a flow of uh, hostages coming out of uh, Gaza. Yeah, Rick makes a great point. Israel says it will extend the pause for every additional 10 hostages. So this could take on a lot of different forms here in the coming days. And we're going to have a deeper dive with Rick and Jeannie on this important development here on the day before Thanksgiving. I'm Joe Matthew in Washington. We're glad you joined us on Sound On. This is Bloomberg. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On podcast. Catch the program live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Israel is calling it a pause. Hamas calls it a truce. Whatever you want to call it, the White House wants you to know that President Biden was deeply involved. Jake Sullivan Speaking about the hostage deal, the hostage release deal announced today, speaking on ABC's Good Morning America about the role that the president of the United States played in achieving their freedom. The key, honestly, was bearing down on both sides, working the United States closely with Qatar and with the government of Egypt to get both sides to essentially get specific. And the, the big move happened late last week when President Biden spoke first with Prime Minister Netanyahu and then with the Emir of Qatar to say how many hostages for how many days in return for how many Palestinian prisoners. And it was really the work to refine those details uh, that finally produced the breakthrough that we now see resulting in the announcement of a pause in hostilities and the uh, first return of prisoners, of, uh, of hostages. Rick Davis and Jeannie Shanzano, our signature panel, back together for their thoughts on this deal. Now that it has emerged, we should note, by the way, the president is not in town 
He is on Nantucket celebrating uh, Thanksgiving with the family, and this deal came together late yesterday. We were waiting for it. I'm sure he thought it might emerge before he left the city, but no big announcement here, no Rose Garden announcement coming from the White House, despite the fact that the administration was clearly deeply uh, involved in this. Jeannie, you made the point before, it's not time to be celebrating or taking victory laps with 200 more hostages in Gaza. But this administration clearly wants people to know that Joe Biden was on the phone helping to make this happen. Yeah, they do. And with good reason. I think it's another case of Joe Biden, you know, being very good and delivering. Again, we have to be cautious here because they haven't been delivered yet but delivering on a promise to try to strike a deal. But it's not something that's visible to most Americans. And so, you know, to hear Jake Sullivan today out on the morning shows, you just played that clip. He's absolutely right to make the case. You know, this is, I think, the scope and the scale of what, if this comes through, they have achieved, if they get these 50 children and women out is quite remarkable. We've never seen anything like it. And, you know, it's just chilling when you think about the specifics here. Israel has released some information that are being given to Israeli soldiers who are going to be potentially greeting the children they when they come out, sort of a script of what to do and what not to do. It is utterly, utterly frightening to read and to think about what these people have gone through. And the fact that we may see three Americans come out and we don't know yet, but that then there are about 200 remaining. The scope and the scale is astonishing. And, you know, President Biden deserves kudos if this worked. But again, there's a lot more work to be done. And watch for a divide between the U.S. and Israel continuing to get to be exacerbated because all three of the statements we saw from the White House ended focusing on the release of hostages versus Israel and Netanyahu. They are going back to their primary goal of destroying Hamas. Many people feel those two goals are in conflict. And the resolution to those is really difficult to parse your way out of. Yeah, well, that that's one way of looking at it, Rick. Some folks think that they're not in conflict and, in fact, are reliant upon each other. How do you look at it? Yeah, look, I mean, <laughs> presidencies for as long back as we can remember have have suffered under expectations and disappointments in the Middle East, you know, whether it's all out war like what we have now or failed peace initiatives. Um, you know, it's it's actually part of the methodology you see the Biden White House using. Um, uh, try to take some credit, but don't expect to get out too far because your heart's going to get broken at some point along the way here. And, you know, mm. you just got to protect the presidency from looking like it's taking credit from something that actually turns into another bad thing. So there's so much that can go wrong, not just with this initial release of hostages, but with ultimately the um, the war that is going on now and how long it'll last and what it'll look like five years from now. And 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 so the good news for the Biden White House is that there it, it's not likely to be a major issue in the general election. I mean, they'd like to get out from underneath some of the negatives that have happened some of the protest movements in the United States. Uh, and so you see, you know, very careful orchestrations, which is why, by the way, you wouldn't see a Rose Garden or a presidential speech, because the last thing that they want to do is put him too far out in front of something that could wind up being a disaster. So um, mm -hmm. the, the foreign policy, you know, brief and national politics, though, is pretty minimal. Uh, he doesn't have to prove to anybody that he can be commander in chief. He's been it. Uh, and so, uh, really, uh, I think the White House is probably sitting around, you know, by the time the first hostages here released tomorrow, starting to think about how they can start talking about the economy again. Hmm. Interesting. I thought maybe we'd see a, a statement uh, or something from Joe Biden on Nantucket, Jeannie. You know, you pull out the pipe and drape, they can always go live from there. Maybe a message to Americans on Thanksgiving Eve that they're making progress in the Middle East. Does that not happen? You know, I think we may, I think they are very worried and rightly so about getting ahead of their skis. So I think they may yeah. wait until we see an actual release, um, which which would make sense. But, you know, on the point that you and Rick were just talking about other things to watch for, you know, we are hearing about a, a real connection continuing between Iran and Russia, Russia potentially giving Hezbollah air defense missiles, 
Iran giving Russia some type of munitions, some type of missiles um, to use over Ukraine. Those are the kinds of things that can really blow up, to use a horrible expression, in the administration's face as we face a real, real challenge containing this in the Middle East. And so it's really important to watch out for that. We even heard Xi Jinping talking about this at BRICS yesterday. So, you know, in their virtual meeting and calling for a two-state solution and Putin responding. So, so much international pressure and so much international foreign policy issues riding on this. It can really blow up in a number of different ways that the administration can't foresee. So they got to be very careful about what they say publicly. Yeah, for sure. I asked Congressman Barra uh, about the funding for Israel, not to mention Ukraine and the others that are in the supplemental budget request from the White House, Rick. Uh, And it does look like uh, Republicans have uh, at least a little bit more assurity in their majority. Celeste Malloy won this special election in Utah to fill the seat of uh, former Congressman Chris Stewart. So it stays Republican. And knowing that George Santos may be losing his seat imminently, uh, does this help Speaker Johnson plan around the looming budget debate? Or is it just a wash the way you look at it? No, I think it's, I mean, obviously every little bit uh, is important here in a very closely divided Congress. And and he's been without one extra vote. So, um, you know, the margins have been super slim, you know, just three people. Uh, would make a difference in getting something passed or having it fail. So uh, uh, one vote matters, uh, and 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 you can't guarantee uh, that that Santos will be expelled. I mean, it it really sounds like there's um, uh, an attitude right now that they really don't care anymore uh, to lose that vote, and he's he's mm-hmm. been such an egregious abuser of the law uh, that he needs to go. But uh, I'm not going to hold my breath on that. I mean, Congress has. Um, has 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 not really distinguished itself this year as being, you know, uh, a object of profile and courage. So, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, look, it's it's pretty clear, though. I mean, let's just be clear. Nothing's going to pass this Congress without a bipartisan Democrat and Republican coalition to push legislation mm-hmm. through, just like they just did on the CR and they did before on the debt limit. Uh, uh, conservative mavericks, the Freedom Caucus, the MAGA extremists, whatever you want to call them, they're going to hold this place up. They don't care if Washington burns. They don't care if people miss their paychecks. They are trying to create, you know, all kinds of disruption within the federal government. Uh, they just assume not fund the Justice Department, the military, the 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 FBI. So uh, you know, you're you're in a you're in a cycle, and hopefully, Speaker Johnson uh, recognizes it. That without bipartisan cooperation, people like the congressman you just interviewed who are prepared to go to work and get things done with Republicans and Democrats alike, um, you know, unless you have that, you're not going to get anything done. There you have it from Rick Davis and Jeannie Shanzano, our signature panel. And I hope you know how thankful I am and we are for you, your insights, your friendship and companionship here on Sound On. Cheers to you both and have a great holiday. Kaylee's on the way in next. Hour two of Sound On starts right now. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. 
Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Hour 2 of Bloomberg Sound On. I'm Joe Matthew in Washington, where there is another. Kaylee Lines is here as well. Nice to see you. <laughs> actually, I shouldn't say that. Congressman Ami Barra was with us in studio last That's hour. Right. I think he is actually the only lawmaker maybe in Washington today. Yeah. The president is gone. Mm -hmm. He's on Nantucket, by the way. I don't know if we need to have a little instructional thing about that. I keep reading that he's in Nantucket. You can't be in an island, right? That's how when we're in New England, we say yeah, you're on Nantucket. You're on the vineyard. But you're not on Manhattan. No, and that's New York's own problem, I feel like. But it's an island. You're not in Survivor Island. You're on Survivor Island. Interesting. And I we actually do that for things up there other than islands. You see, you're on the Cape. You're not in Cape Cod. You're on Cape Cod. Interesting. This it's been feels like me a Northeasterner thing. It clearly is. Yeah. I'm sure it's grammatically incorrect, but I'm sticking with it. <laughs> okay. The president on Nantucket, he does this every year. It's a Nantucket thing, and I'm not sure if that has anything to do uh, with just getting away from it all. But I'll tell you what, there's nothing happening on Nantucket right now. Yeah, well, there's not much happening here in D.C. That's true. either. I think pretty much every lawmaker is soaking up all of the family holiday time that they're getting, the gravy. soaking up their thankfulness because they're probably just filled with dread at the prospect of returning to D.C. and dealing with all of the business <laughs> wow. they have to deal with That's on the other side of the street. That's a desperate state of affairs, Lines. So, <laughs> some would not blame them for that, I guess. Yeah. Uh, they're going to hear from constituents. They're going to second guess this whole speaker thing. God knows what else will come out of the wash by the time they're back. Uh, we're going to talk about that and the latest on the campaign trail coming up with our friend Terry Haynes from Pangea Policy. We're totally pulling him off of uh, his time off as well, I think. But yes, God he's love very Terry kind to join us. To bring us direction. And we've got an eye on what's happening on Niagara Falls. Mm -hmm. This popped up last hour, Kaylee, uh, and it looks like we have a new headline from Fox. This appears to have been a fatal event uh, at the bridge, the Rainbow Bridge that connects Canada and the U.S., yeah, just about a mile from Niagara Falls. Of course, we already had understood that there was a vehicle explosion that the FBI was investigating. And now, according to Fox, that explosion was an attempted terrorist attack. There are two dead wow. in that car explosion. Again, this is, according to Fox, there is a lot we still don't know here. And we know that New York Governor Kathy Hochul is, is en route uh, in this direction right now as, as you're seeing the border crossings in all throughout this area, a number of them closed at the moment. This is incredible stuff, and it's uh, it's developing very quickly here uh, before our eyes. Uh, Governor Kathy Hochul on her way to the border, apparently, to Niagara Falls. Uh, we'll, of course, bring you comments from her if we get them, but this literally just happened less than an hour ago, so mm -hmm. this is going to take uh, some time here. But to see that headline from Fox, an attempted terror attack, I'd like to see the attribution and know more about it. Uh, we're obviously letting you know what we know as we learn it, and you're you're seeing these headlines across the terminal and Bloomberg.com all the while. We should bring Terry in. Terry Haynes, of course, the founder of Pangea Policy and a regular voice here uh, at Bloomberg, joins us now on Sound On. It's great to see you, Terry. Thank you for giving us a little bit of time. I had a lot of questions for you about what's happening in Iowa here and on the campaign trail, uh, but I'll tell you what, it's hard to... Uh, to ignore this story at Niagara Falls, when you see a headline like that, it does seem to bring credibility to what Christopher Ray, the head of the FBI, has been telling lawmakers that domestic terror threats are near an all-time high right now. Well, absolutely. Uh, and thank you for having me. Uh, you know, I, I one way I think about this is, you know, I wrote a note uh, for clients Almost exactly ten years ago, laying out where the where, where the parties were on uh, immigration, on border security, and what was uh, likely or, or uh, more likely, or what was likely or not to happen. Really, I could I could exhume that note, and the parties would pretty much be in exactly the same place. But 
the the ice is finally starting to crack in Washington a little bit on this, and it's a, it'd be too soon to say you know to to expect action. Uh, but this is the kind of event that uh, will spur people into action. But what you've heard in the last couple of weeks in Washington, uh, I think, has been fascinating if you're interested in border security. Not only is border security uh, funding policy changes part of the uh, part of the discussion around uh, and an integral part of the discussion around Ukraine aid and Israel aid, uh, but you've got people uh, across the political spectrum that are saying that things actually have to change. Peter Welch of Vermont, I mean, somebody I've known for a very, very long time, uh, very good guy. You know, Peter put the P in progressive pretty much. And Peter's been uh, saying publicly over the past couple of weeks that something needs to change. We actually need to do something here substantively. And if you've got pe thoughtful people like Peter Welch saying that, uh, you know, the, the, and, and you have an event like this that's just happened, uh, you know, the stars are starting to align for some sort of action here, I think. Well, change is one thing to hope for, and it's easy to talk about, but as we often learn and have seen borne out time and again, change is much harder to actually implement. Terry, even if something like this happening uh, at the northern border, when a lot of attention has been paid to the southern border, does provide a bit more impetus, it still becomes a, a matter of trying to get everyone aligned and how long realistically that takes. You mentioned how the border security issue is becoming very tied to the issue of providing funding uh, for other countries' securities, Ukraine and Israel funding especially. Do you think realistically this is something that can be achieved in in 2023, or is this a new year issue? I've got it at 75 percent that that something happens on this, the something being Ukraine aid, Israel aid, uh, border security uh, by the end of 2023. That's, you know, that's a little more than a 25 percent. Uh, 25 percent there is a little more than a trailing risk that something doesn't happen. But the way the the way that this has been set up, and I know it was set up first by the president, and Republicans in Congress have really taken it by the horns. Uh, you know, something on border security substantively as well as on funding has to happen. Otherwise, you're not going to get Israel aid or Ukraine aid. Uh, so now we've got a real forcing event here. So uh, once uh, everybody comes back next week, I would look for the next four weeks uh, to be chock full of that debate uh, with an eye towards getting something uh, meaningful done. I don't know what your thought is on this, but it's clearly going to bring up a conversation about border security to the north and the south, Terry. Vivek Ramaswamy is, in fact, calling for the U.S. to build a U.S.-Canada border wall, not unlike the Trump border wall on our southern border. Is that a serious idea or not? Uh, I, that's profoundly unserious. Uh, that is a uh, – I read that as a – uh, as an attempt to uh, for Mr. Ramaswamy to uh, reach out to 2016 and 2020 Trump voters and pretty much nothing mm -hmm. else. Uh, and Ramaswamy's not a dumb guy. He knows that's an infeasible idea. That's my kind of response, Kaylee. Imagine floating an idea and having Terry Haynes call it profoundly unserious. You know, it, it reminds me of the Logan Roy in Succession thing where he, he says he <laughs> so loves his children, people. but they are not serious <laughs> no. people. You just kind of gave me that vibe, Terry, just now. Of course, Vivek Ramaswamy still vying for the Republican nomination, as are a number of other candidates. It doesn't seem, though, at least at this time, that he is one of the one runs in running for the silver medal. This is a race for second place, as we know, with Donald Trump still out front. But Ron DeSantis, who is one of the two, the other being Nikki Haley, trying to get that second, second place spot. We're almost there. Uh, <laughs> did get a key endorsement in Iowa. And this is not the first that he's gotten. Kim Reynolds also ha uh, had endorsed him previously. Now an endorsement from a, a highly influential evangelical. Do you think that gets him that number two spot in Iowa, Terry? How consequential is this? Well, I think it is consequential, Kaylee. Uh, it, it's certainly going to, the stars certainly align well for Mr. DeSantis right now. Let's put it that way. Uh, you know, I have a little bit of a different take on the race, and uh, it's and let me start by saying it's awfully fluid. Uh, Iowa and Iowa's uh, caucusers are not going to focus uh, uh, with real intent uh, until after the first of the year. I mean, we're talking about an event that's you know really going to happen almost two months from now. So, uh, not an inconsiderable period of time, and the holidays go by and all the rest. Uh, but I would urge people to look at it this way. Uh, the 
the Trump national numbers mean nothing. National beauty contests are never relevant in presidential elections because the president is never uh, is never picked that way. Uh, as we all know very well, this has to do with electoral college and not uh, popular vote. So there's that. Trump's numbers uh, in Iowa and New Hampshire are more than 10 points less than the national beauty contest numbers. Uh, we see a, uh, a trend, we see two trends. One where the race is consolidating over the past three months, uh, and I think it's really down to the, the, the Trump alternative is really down to DeSantis or Haley. Uh, and in no particular order right now. Uh, but in Iowa, uh, you know, DeSantis has, has put his entire campaign on winning in Iowa. And now he's gotten uh, the endorsements of Governor Reynolds and now of Mr. Vander Plaats um, of the family organization, uh, which, are sub which are serious endorsements, substantive. Um, they equate to boots on the ground, as Vander Plaats himself said, uh, I'm paraphrasing, but said last night, I mean, the, you know, these, these are the kind of endorsements that equate to, you know, people actually working for the nomination, you know, not just, uh, 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 not just standstill kind of endorsements. Uh, so, you know, I think DeSantis has got some momentum here. Uh, I would look for the narrative in the, me in the national media to start uh, in the next month or so to start wondering, uh, whether Trump is now underperforming, because it doesn't take much to, to look at or see a world where in Iowa, uh, Trump comes off a mid 40s and comes down into the 30s uh, once uh, folks second choices, whether that be DeSantis or Haley, start kicking in. And then people are going to start to say, well, this is a horse race. This is a two person, three person horse race. We have a month going into New Hampshire, and we've got uh, Christie still trying to uh, push there because he's got the same sort of strategy as DeSantis does. Um, so, you know, I think there's actually a, a lot of life in this uh, in this nomination process yet, and uh, and we should all watch for that uh, over the next month to month and a quarter, uh, you know, past the first of the year when things were really going to start uh, either shifting. Uh, towards a, the challengers, DeSantis or Haley, or alternatively, uh, they run out of steam, and uh, then it really does start to look like a Trump nomination. Fender Platts has backed the Iowa Republican winner in the last three contested Iowa caucuses. We talked last hour about how that worked for John McCain in 2008. Rick Davis certainly remembers it. Could we be in a world, Terry, then, in which Ron DeSantis wins Iowa and Nikki Haley wins New Hampshire? What happens then? Uh, well, then you're going to have a situation where uh, you, you have uh, two viable challengers, uh, you know, no more consolidation yet, and you're going to run into the uh, you're going to run into this kind of the Super Tuesday uh, block of states uh, where it's mm -hmm. going to start to look like uh, either Trump is going to either Trump is going to consolidate a vote or the challengers are going to start to consolidate a vote. Uh, and, either, and either way, it looks like uh, it, it's, it's either done on the one hand or on the other hand, it's a real life horse race. So uh, and we're still, you know, two, two and a half months out from that. So uh, a lot of time left in this race. Two and a half months feels like a long time, but I think we all know it's that like that's barely probably enough time to pack fly. for this thing. Are oh, you yeah. kidding? It, oh, yeah. yeah. And it, it might, <laughs> Terry, it might also be barely enough time to pass a budget because oh, yeah. we're talking Iowa here and at the same time, potentially a government shutdown. Oh. Yeah. Well, you know, it's, we're getting to the point of perfection now where there's just going to be like rolling, continuing resolutions, temporary funding uh, for all year, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and we're not really Perfect. that far off. From that. Yeah. We're really not that far off from that, but uh, what should, what we're going to have in, in terms of uh, government funding is a world where, uh, in mid-January, the, uh, the the Republican purists in the House are going to have to, uh, to un have to figure out whether they're going to throw another fit, uh, or if they're and of the kind that toppled uh, Speaker McCarthy uh, right. to get something of what they want or not. But uh, either way, uh, what uh, listeners should understand and viewers should understand is that. You know, this is all very uh, demonstrative, performative uh, on both sides. Mm -hmm. uh, 
you know, one side wants to talk about draconian cuts, the other one, uh, the other ones wants to talk about the, the the idea that they're starting to make them. That's really one percent yeah. out of thirty percent of the overall spending of the federal government. So that that will roll right. us back to uh, the, the 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 dark days of fiscal twenty two. So you know, in mm. reality, we're arguing about almost nothing. But yet, uh, uh, yeah, it's a very out of it. small, yeah. but enough slice to shut the, the whole thing down. Hey, Terry, thanks for joining. We're very thankful for your contributions and your friendship and your smart analysis. We hope you have a great holiday. Terry Haynes at Pangea. This is Bloomberg. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest-growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank. Because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers, and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights, and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch the program live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. One of the other stories we're following brings us overseas and, of course, yeah. to the price of oil here. We were gearing up for big OPEC meeting this weekend. Now we were. it has been rescheduled. It has been postponed to November 30th, and this raised a lot of questions and, frankly, a lot of fear in the market right now because this is a cartel. They have to make joint decisions on what their production is going to be like. That directly affects the oil price, and the delay of the meeting suggests that they're having a little bit of difficulty deciding what that production should look like. And if they can't keep an agreement together, we've seen this happen in years past where it has dramatic implications for oil markets. So we wanted to get a little bit more insight into this. Mm -hmm. Joining us now is Ellen Wald. She is a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council, also the author of Saudi Inc. Ellen, thank you so much for joining us. Of course, Saudi Arabia plays a really critical role in this. They have been shouldering a lot of the burden of production cuts to this point. And I just wonder if this signals to you that the Saudis are less willing to go it alone now, that they want everybody to be moving together and not everybody is willing. Exactly. And the Saudis have definitely, and at times, this is not the only time that they have extended their goodwill and made extra production cuts outside of what they're technically obligated to do under the OPEC and OPEC plus agreements. And so, uh, but these are not indefinite. The Saudis are not going to keep a million barrels a day off of the market forever. And they're certainly not going to do it if other members aren't fulfilling or living up to their uh, parts of the deal. And the way that OPEC plus um, production agreements are um, structured essentially that every country has a baseline production. And then whether they are decreasing or increasing production comes at a proportion of that. So every country involved is going to cut, say, mm-hmm. 5% uh, from their baseline, or they're going to increase by 3% from their baseline. And that's how it. That's how they maintain this kind of fairness. And so what we're seeing or what we think the issues are right now is that um, the baselines have changed. Some countries are 
are not able to actually produce as much as they were, you know, in 2016 when these baselines were created. And other countries have invested and expanded their production capacity. And so they'd like uh, higher baselines. And back in June, yeah. um, a whole bunch of African countries were told that their baselines were going to decrease unless they could prove that they could actually produce more uh, by November. And now it's November. And a lot of these countries are very upset because if their baseline decreases, it means that they're going to have to cut production because they're supposed to cut a certain percentage of the baseline. And this is very distressing to them. And so I think this yeah. is one of the, the main reasons why the meeting is delayed. Hmm. So, Ellen, could, be we, could we be in a world then in which some of these disagreements lead some members uh, to consider leaving OPEC? That's entirely possible. And I think that that is probably preferable, at least for the kind of core membership. That's a preferable alternative to say, um, not having any agreement or to capitulating in some respects. And this has happened before um, in 2016, when they reached the um, overall declaration of cooperation, where they all agreed to cut, Indonesia left the group because it said, we can't afford to cut uh, at all. So uh, they essentially just left the group. Since then, Qatar has left the group. So it's not unheard of. Um, it would be, I think, very difficult if a large number of African producers left, because um, recently mm. a lot of these members have joined. They are representing a big and an important source of production for the future. And so I think OPEC would really like to do what they can to keep these members in the group because for the future, uh, that's very important uh, to them and to keep these members in because the more production that happens outside of OPEC, the less control and influence OPEC can have over the market supply. Okay, so let's talk about those prices, Ellen. What what price is it that you think Saudi Arabia, for example, would like to see? And what price range could we see if there is no agreement on production potentially and everybody decides to pump a lot or or if there is and they decide to constrain supply even more? For those in Washington very much concerned with the price at the pump, what what's the risk here? How asymmetric is it? So I, I don't think that I, I think there's a very low risk that prices are going to go high. Um, we're in a period now where prices generally trend lower. Um, we're looking at issues in terms of demand. There's some weaknesses, economic weaknesses that people see in China. Uh, so I don't think we're really at risk of, you know, suddenly having a massive production cut that's going to send prices sky high. Uh, I, I would say we, we shouldn't really be worried about that. But what we should be worried, what we could be worried about is the group falling apart or um, the group becoming less in line with the market. So when you have uh, countries that are producing and they're not producing up to their quota or the quotas don't match, the market lacks the right information about who's pumping what oil. And that's really important, I think. And, and so um, bringing these numbers in line with their actual capabilities provides really vital information to the people who are looking at the market and saying, hey, wait, how much actual oil is out there. And um, I think that provides really valuable information and helps decrease volatility. So what we're looking at now is increased volatility with the potential for things to go farther downward. Um, if we don't get any agreement, I, I think it's unlikely we won't see any agreement because OPEC can always try to maintain the status quo, which isn't great, mm -hmm. but uh, at least it's something and it's better than say, uh, you know, an all out supply production uh, contest. I, I think we're unlikely to see that, but there's definitely this period of tension. And the question is how far will Saudi Arabia take this to push these yep. members to actually conform to what they want. And that's the real question. And the Saudi oil minister, uh, he can be somewhat yeah. of a live wire. <laughs> Ellen, right. we always learn something when we talk to you. Ellen Wald, many thanks for joining us today on Sound On. Senior fellow at the Atlantic Council, author of Saudi Inc. Just looking at average gas prices going into the holiday here, Kaylee. $3.28 nationally. Mm -hmm. A year ago, we were at three sixty-three. At least there's that. This is Bloomberg. Thanks for listening to the Sound On podcast. Make sure to subscribe if you haven't already at Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. And you can find us live every weekday from Washington, D.C. at 1 p.m. Eastern Time at Bloomberg.com. The countdown has begun. 
This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.